This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I'd like to welcome everyone to Austin Zen Center this morning. I'd like to give a big warm welcome to our visiting teacher, Reverend Tanku Ruff. Tanku is the head teacher of the Northern Westchester Zen Group in uh, New York, just north of New York City. And she has been a practitioner in Zen for the past 20-some years, and has practiced uh, both in Japan and in the United States, receiving her uh, a large amount of her training in Japan with her teacher, I'm not forgetting his name, yeah? Tessa Yamamoto. And uh, she is also the current president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, we're very happy to have you back in Austin after just a few months. So thank you very much for coming and offering your teaching. Good morning. Good morning. So the topic of today's talk is growing up and staying present. And this has been something that has been on my mind a lot recently. And I hope we can unpack it a little bit during this talk. What does it mean to fully become an adult? And how is this related to waking up? So, um, what somebody asked me not too long ago, what Zen teachers I most admire. And as I thought about it, a series of images came up. One image was of a very small Zafu that had been used so much that it was very flat and shiny. So clearly well used. And when I thought of that Zafu, I, I also pictured the person who sits on it every morning, very regularly, just showing up and sitting on it until it had become very worn. I also had an image of um, my own teacher. When we were visiting New York together many years ago, we stayed in a Quaker residence in New York City, and um, before we went out, he said, oh wait, I need to go take care of something, and, and I waited and waited, and I was like, finally came down and I was like, where'd you go? And he said, oh, um, you know, the, the toilets were dirty, so I just wanted to clean them before we left. And I was like, wow. And he's like, no, you know, it, it, no, it's not, it's just, you know, it feels like such a relief when you go into a bathroom and the toilets are clean. So he was really um, kind of quiet about it, but still does it, and he does it all the time. So I had that image. And he also shows up every morning for Zazen in his temple, whether people are there or not, every morning. And for a long time, the same people came every morning as well. Even the year that we had three meters of snow in 10 days, these same people came. One guy even was in his 90s and he drove his scooter through the snow, and we hadn't been able to 
clear the walkway yet because the, just the sheer volume, we could hardly get out the door. And he just swam through the snow like this and came for his zazen. <laughs> I had an image of a story that I heard of a Korean monk, a well-known Korean monk. Many Korean monks have the practice of doing 108 prostrations every morning at the beginning of the day. And this particular Korean monk had had heart surgery and was in the hospital. And when someone came to visit him, they found him out of his bed. And they were like, why are you out of your bed? And he said, well, I have to do my morning prostrations. <laughs> so that's, on one hand, wait a minute, you know, that's not okay. <laughs> and on the other hand, so impressive that that was so ingrained in him that, that that's what he does. That's just what he does. That's it. And a final image that I wanted to share was a photo that I saw um, around the time that Blanche Hartman died, somebody shared a photo with her of her, and the photo is in the um, lobby area of the San Francisco Zen Center, and she's standing with several people who are quite well dressed. So, I'm thinking it's you know for a ceremony or something like that, and she is talking with them, very engaged, and she's leaning on a desk mop. And at this point in time, she had been the abbess and was probably, had probably even stepped down by that time. So her rank was not low. And her impulse was to take the dust mop and clean up before the ceremony. So if you notice an underlying theme here, people who show up with humility and just do what needs to be done. Just do the practice. These are not the rock stars of Zen. These are not the people with 10 or 12 books who are um, in the New York Times and in the press. I don't think any of these people have blogs. <laughs> Not, you know, nothing wrong with a blog. It's just these particular ones. You know, they're also older, but there's a theme of, of just doing the practice and showing up day after day after day. And this continuous practice with humility is, for me, what I most admire. There's absolutely no separation between these people and their practice. Practice isn't something special that they do. It's just something like breathing. We often have this image of an enlightened being as this shining orb that either, you know, probably lives kind of up here in the sky somewhere who, who might come down to the earth and hang out with us for a little bit or might just float right back up there and stay up there for us to admire as it shines brightly. And this being is, is completely perfect 
nothing going on except pure perfection. And we aspire to one day become this perfect being. And a lot of times in the Zen world, we, we develop this aspiration. I want to be a perfect enlightened being. And, and one day I'm going to get the magic stick and everything that I do will be perfect. And everything that falls from my lips will be pearls of wisdom for people to collect and gather and place in a place of honor. <laughs> so I'm going to offer an alternative interpretation <laughs> for the magic stick. I'm sure you are familiar with the koan. What is Buddha? Buddha is a shit stick. <laughs> and I'm going to offer that interpretation for this. I didn't know what... I heard that koan. And I had my image, and people have different interpretations of what a shit, shit stick is. Um, you know, whatever. <laughs> but one day, I was um, at Hoshinji Monastery, and we were out in the back cleaning behind the temple. And um, one of the things that the head monk had to do was clean the latrines, because we had, you know, old-style drop toilets. And, uh, you know, just one receptacle for it with a lot of uh, entrance points. <laughs> and so we were out there cleaning, and he's like, well, I have to go clean the latrines. And he goes, and he picks up a stick, right? And I was like, a shit stick. <laughs> and you know what that thing was for? Um, as he added... added um, things to the enzymes and things to help the collected waste decompose, he had to stir it. And that's what you do. You stir it up. And you stir it up, not like for fun, because it kind of smells, you know, but to help it decompose, to help it continue to grow and to break down as it's supposed to do. So this is my, today's interpretation of what this is for. And I also want to offer a different interpretation of the words enlightened beings. And this I'm uh, going to credit a friend of mine who was giving a talk on Dogen's eight factors of enlightened beings, which is the, said to be the last teaching that he gave. So the word enlightened beings, again, you know, we have this image. I don't know what your image is, but I know that there's a common image of perfection. When you see that word, yes, it, it says enlightened beings in Japanese, but if you read it in the everyday language, it's the word for adult. So how about that? The eight factors of becoming adults. Because what else is an enlightened being but a full adult? And that's my question today. How do we fully become adults? And there's something that prompted my question, 
which I, I'm going to come back to a few times. And it was the image of these Catholic high school boys in an exchange with a native elder man. And that image, as you know, I'm sure most people probably saw it. If you have opinions about it, this isn't the time for that. <laughs> so we all have opinions about it, right? Um, but what would it mean to become adults from a spiritual perspective? Because we're talking about boys. These are boys, 14, 15 years old. They're not adults yet. Not even in human form, you know? They're becoming adults. And it's our job to help them as adults, as practitioners as well. What would that mean? A teacher that I really, that I met very early in my practice um, was giving us a talk one night. And he told us that, let me see if I write it down. He told us that the point of practice is that we practice, we build up our practice, and then it falls apart. And then we build it up again, and then it falls apart again. And this is how it goes. This is practice. Practice is not that one day when everything is perfect, but it's the process of building it up falling apart, building it up, falling apart. And this is how it goes. This is the way. And I found really great comfort in this over the years. Because why? Because it means that it's not about me becoming something that I'm not, but it's actually about what we're doing from day to day when we really wake up by leaning in and staying attentive as the, you know, shit gets stirred around us. And through all of this, the most important thing is to keep doing it, to continue. Likewise, in practice, you know, there are times where it's just really hard and you can barely drag yourself out. And sometimes you can't drag yourself out. And there are other times where you just can't wait to get here. Some days, when I, especially when I first went back to Japan, where they don't have central heating, um, some days I felt like I was going to die from cold. <laughs> and I have to, you know, ring the bells, which means I, I couldn't wear gloves, and um, I, I wouldn't be able to hold the striker because my hands would get so numb. And that felt like... A terrible thing. <laughs> and then other days in the summer, these robes that I'm wearing are summer weight, and usually by the time, by around 9 a.m. or 10, they would be completely drenched with sweat. Like totally. So we would have to change clothes about three times a day, and that felt dire. And over time, the situation did not change. And you know what? It, it, it will never change. <laughs> That's how it's going to be. And so you just stop thinking about it. 
on the days that it's cold, you, you just go. And you show up and you ring the bells and you develop ways of holding the striker <laughs> with numb hands. And on the days where it's hot, you move a little more slowly and you just show up. And this is the way of practice. And this is just like zazen practice. During zazen, we sit, we follow our breath, we get distracted, we have thoughts, and we bring it back to our breath. We sit, we follow our breath, our thoughts take over. Sometimes we go over to Egypt for a while, and then we bring it back. And the most important thing in all of this is not those moments of, oh, wow, the world is so beautiful, but it's actually the pulling back, the continuous coming back to center over and over and over again. Staying present, even when things are hard, especially when things are hard, is where the real juice of the practice is. Staying present when those, you know, feelings of great discomfort come up, not even physical discomfort, but Remembering over and over and over that time in third grade when you said that thing to that kid and they cried and how awful that was. See, even now you can feel that awfulness. We can learn to stay present to that, even that. This is a part of life. The thing that we don't need is A, to skip over. There are a lot of ideas amongst Buddhist practitioners, maybe all spiritual practitioners, that, yeah, we're going to go for that Buddha in the sky. And when we get there, because everything's going to be perfect, we better get there fast. And we're just going to, like, jump right over all this uncomfortable shit in the middle. Because why? You know, it's going to be fine anyway when we get there to the place in the sky and we're going to get the magic stick and we'll know what to say then, that day. When we arrive, one day, when we have that great experience of enlightenment, then we'll know what to say. It's just going to come out of us naturally what to say, and what to do. It's going to be so easy on that day. And again, I'm going to offer a different (laughs) interpretation. What we're doing every day in those moments of discomfort, in those times where we disagree with people, in the the day-to-day grind where we're bored, this is enlightenment. This is adult behavior, doing it, showing up, doing it. With the boys, which I'm going to come back to, and Nathan Phillips, the native elder, we had a lot going on there. We have two really different cultures, right? We had um, young and old. We had white and native, mostly white and native. 
we had two different, very different um, purposes for even being present that day that carried very different energies. An energy of protest against something and an energy of coming together as a community for something. We had um, a response of a group together um, responding by their cheer, which, you know, I'll just say that's a group response, and we had an individual response. The thing that, um, the response that I really keep touching is the response of Nathan Phillips, the native elder. And the reason is not that it was perfect. Um, And I don't think anybody in this whole situation was perfect, to say it mildly. It was that in his place of stress, in his place of fear, and he was afraid and worried, where did he go to? He went straight for his spiritual practice. And this is what we have to do. Now, his spiritual practice of praying, singing, and drumming, I doubt that the boys understood that that was a spiritual practice. And yet that was his intention, and that was the energy that came in. And so I was wondering, the boys were Catholics, and one thing that they said was, I hope, I certainly hope that he did not feel threatened by us. They said other things too, which I'm not going to go into right now. They said, I certainly hope he didn't feel threatened for us. And at one point they said, yeah, we were praying too. And I was like, okay, we can work with that, right? There's a place we can start. Why? Because there's a place we can connect. Does a native prayer on the surface look the same as a Catholic prayer? Maybe not on the surface. But what if we go a little deeper? And then just a little deeper to the heart of a prayer. To what's really that open place when we feel really connected with our spiritual practice. And same for us, you know, when we feel really in touch. There's a place we can start because we connect. Nathan Phillips said that I have faith that human beings can use a moment like this to find a way to gain understanding from one another. And then later he said, the students had an opportunity not to hate and to put out an olive branch and say, let's sit down and pray together. I found this so beautiful. Let's sit down and pray together. He did not say, let's sit down and pray a Lakota, our native prayer together. He did not sit down and say, let's sit down and pray my way together. He said, let's sit down and pray together. Fully conscious that these boys have a different way of praying. (coughs) There's your point of connection. When I was um, visiting, when I was at Standing Rock, I noticed that 
they invited everybody who came in to pray. That was the first thing they asked. They asked that of me, a Buddhist, could you offer prayers, please? They asked that of Catholic priests, can you offer prayers, please? Your prayers. They asked that of Jewish rabbis. They asked that of Protestants. They asked that of Cornell West. They asked that of themselves, of the different Native people. Could you please, this is the most important thing, please offer a prayer. And this is where we come together. On a deep, you know, it's not the, the prayer. It's the heart of the prayer. This is where we meet. And that's always available to us. And as we practice, it becomes more and more available to us. Why? Because as we sit, as we practice zazen, as we live in community, as we stir up the shit and deal with it and meet each other again and again, we learn to let go of our own ego. We learn to let go of me and what I need and to appreciate Your prayer is quite beautiful too. And we can connect through that prayer. Adults, enlightened beings. These are the eight factors, just so you know, of enlightened beings. These are the eight attributes of adults. They're pretty simple. Having few desires, knowing satisfaction, having serenity, making diligent efforts, not losing mindfulness, practicing samadhi, Practicing wisdom and not engaging in idle discussion. Does that make sense? Pretty distilled down to its simplicity. So then, how do we do it? How do we incorporate those aspects of being full adults? into our practice. We keep trying. We keep making mistakes and then we try again and we make mistakes and then we try again. And we take our young people in their mistakes and demonstrate to them, not by preaching at them or hiring a PR firm, but teaching them how to show up when things don't go so well. And this is one aspect that I really loved that what Nathan Phillips wanted the most was to sit down and pray together, to sit down and talk and come to some connection. Connection doesn't necessarily mean agreement. It means listening to another point of view and hearing it fully and understanding that we don't have to all be the same to inhabit this world together. And this is becoming enlightened beings. This is what we already have. This is what we do. This process that we do every day. There's a really lovely poem, which 
is by Rumi. It says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field, and I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to even talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So I wonder how can we meet in that field together beyond ideas of right and wrong? How can the boys and Nathan Phillips meet in that field together beyond ideas of right and wrong? How can we as a community meet in this field together beyond ideas of right and wrong? This is something we have and something we can do. And it really involves making mistakes. Stirring up the shit. Making mistakes and owning them. Because you know what? We are human beings and that's what we do. And that's where the real (coughs) growth is. It's not in that pearl in the sky. It's in the everyday making mistakes and showing up when we make the mistakes. Showing up over and over and over. Oh, I really messed up yesterday. I was so rude. I need to attend to that right now. Not waiting for that day when I get enlightened one day. Then I'm going to know what to say to that person that I hurt yesterday. No, right now. This is enlightenment. (coughs) There's no need to be afraid of making mistakes or of having faults because these are where we grow. If we considered ourselves perfect, then we'd have no motivation to meditate, right? We're already perfect, then we don't need to do anything. But from the perspective of practice, to hope To have no faults is to realize that we do have faults. And this in of itself is faultless. So realizing that making mistakes is is the essence of our practice is itself perfection. And not being aware of our own faults and our own mistakes, that's the greatest fault. Pushing it away, blaming others, it's all you, you're the bad person, you did this, you shouldn't have done this. Not learning ourselves, this is the fault. It's not our mistakes. It's our avoidance of our mistakes. If we're aware of our mistakes, we can show up and make adjustments right away, not wasting time. And where do we get the strength to do this? Again, we get the strength from our practice and from our community supporting us in this practice. Because you know what? We don't have to do this alone. We can support each other. I saw this. um, No, a friend told me of this story once 
of a guy at uh, Tassajara who got really mad at another guy. And he, they left the Zendo, and she watched this happen. And the first guy said, I am so mad at you! And the second guy said, I'm so sorry. Let's sit down and talk about it. This is what we can offer to each other. Let's hear each other. Let's sit down and talk about it. Let's have a little bit of patience around it and cultivate some space around our imperfections and some tolerance and maybe some personal responsibility. Norman Fisher has this book called Taking Our Places. It's about it's for actually for kids becoming adults. He says that responsibility is simply the capacity to respond. Being responsible is an inherently lively quality. It's the capacity to react completely and freely to conditions. Being responsible has nothing to do with control and conformity. Quite the contrary. Responsibility is the willingness to confront nakedly and clearly what's in front of us on its own terms and to be called forth fresh by what occurs. To be called forth fresh by what occurs. To be responsible is to offer yourself to what happens to you and to pledge yourself to your life. Show up. Be present. Especially when it's uncomfortable. This is what I want to leave you with today. Show up. Be present in our faults. And as I think about that image again, there's one final image that really stuck with me. And again, it's so Blanche. Blanche um, had some heart issues and she took medicines and she had a special diet. I don't know if any of y'all have that situation, but there are effects for doing that. Blanche, every morning, would when she was the abbess, would do the morning jundo around the zendo. And as she rounded the corners, you often heard a noise. It's a fart. And she farted with decorum. <laughs> And initially, it's a little bit shocking to hear. I won't lie about that. And sometimes people giggle because farts are funny. (laughs) And you know what? Who in this room has never farted? (laughs) They're a part of being human. And this is our practice. When we make mistakes, 
But I'm not even saying a fart is a mistake, actually. I'm saying that mistakes are part of who we are. So that's a weird word to say. When we do things, when we do, um, I'll call them emotional and social farts. (laughs) Those things happen. They happen to all of us. They smell bad sometimes. And you know what? We move on because that's part of our life. This is what happens. And this is our practice. Walking through those, staying present. She did not run away. She did not act embarrassed. Fully present in every moment. Our mistakes help us to grow. Our mistakes are the fuel of our practice. Our mistakes teach us that essential quality of humility. Because it's impossible to fart with decorum if you don't have a deep core of humility. This in of itself is perfection. These are the qualities of adults, of enlightened beings. Show up, stay present, even when it's uncomfortable, by connecting. And our practice and our community offer us the way to do this. Finally, I'll leave you with my teacher is very fond of saying there are three things in practice that are the most important thing. Number one, to continue. Number two, to continue. And number three, to continue. So please continue. Thank you.